walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 52. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name. I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about Santiago de Compostela a lot lately. It's a new year. Feels like there's some positive momentum on the pandemic front. And it's just the rhythm of things. It's about this time every year that I start thinking more about summer. The dark Pacific Northwest winter is wearing me down a little bit, but finally the days are getting a little bit longer. There's a little bit more light, and it doesn't seem totally irrational to think about summer. And so many summers, I'm so lucky, have led me to Spain and have led me to Santiago de Compostela. And so I think about what's going on in the city. It was hard not to with the official start of the holy year and the opening of the door. And you just track all the stories. You, you hear about people like going out, walking around a bit more. You hear about the brave and bold and maybe reckless trickle of pilgrims making it into Santiago. And you can't help but envision yourself following them just a number of months from now. And some days it seems like the news is promising and encouraging, and other times it seems like the news is just reinforcing the fact that we're going to be locked down longer than any of us would care for at this point. And of course, more than we care for is more than a day, never mind three, four, five, six, seven more months. I think we're all going a little stir-crazy. But anyway, if I'm going to be thinking about Santiago de Compostela, I don't just want to do it idly. I want to give it a little structure. And so I was thinking about the folks in Santiago who devote their time, their energy, their lives to taking care of pilgrims. And I was wondering what their lives have been like in the absence of pilgrims. And so in this episode, we're talking to people with two houses in Santiago that are focused on hospitality. So I'm joined first by Nate and Faith Walter, who run Pilgrim House on Ruinova. And they'll let us know what they've been up to. And they're followed by Sybil Yates of Egeria House, and also deeply involved since its origin with the Camino Chaplaincy. And she'll do the same, bring us up to speed on what she's lived through, what she's seeing, what she's hearing about what's coming in Santiago de Compostela as this is recorded in late January 2021. So it's a full Santiago de Compostela episode, the tale of two houses and the people who run them. Let's start big picture and focus first on the Pilgrim House, and then we'll talk about what this year has been like in Santiago, this most unusual year. For people who don't know, who haven't been to Santiago before or, or missed you when they've passed through, what is the Terra Nova Pilgrim House and what does it offer to pilgrims in Santiago? It is a place for pilgrims. We designed it to be a place for pilgrims who have just arrived off the Camino. 
We like to say we offer support and resources for pilgrims, and we try to care for them in a holistic way. Like we try to care for the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of pilgrims just getting into Santiago. And if you think about Santiago, like there's a lot of places for tourists. You know, you can always find a hotel or a restaurant, but we wanted to create a place just for pilgrims where we kind of continue the Camino spirit of community and supporting each other, listening to people's stories rather than just like the hustle and bustle of Santiago. If you come to Pilgrim House, we kind of have a big space. We're privileged and thankful to have a big space. The front is a living room area where pilgrims can just get together and talk with us if they want. And then we have a kitchenette where we can have tea and coffee and people can prepare their own snacks or meals there. And then in the back, our favorite place is the back room and patio because it's just a place of like solitude and quiet where pilgrims can journal and just really decompress and think through things. So we kind of have different spaces in the welcome center. It's a welcome center. We don't have beds, so it's not an albergue, but it's like a day center where pilgrims can just come and relax and just tell us what they need and we can try to help them in that. And I might add to that too, that just to be clear, it is a nonprofit space. And so it's not a business we're not making our salary off of that. We are employees of a nonprofit out of the U.S. and kind of help run that. Because of that, it is a little bit free of that maybe consumerist mindset that people get shocked by when they get to Santiago. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone who's walked will have understood that feeling for the most part. How long have you both been there now? We moved here in 2007. We first were in La Coruña for four years, working with a church up there to develop our nonprofit association, which is Terra Nova. So Terra Nova is an association that we set up partnering with that church. And then Pilgrim House is our first project. And we've been in Santiago since 2011. And then we opened up Pilgrim House in 2014. So it was a super long journey, very long story, but we finally opened and uh, we've been open six years. It's been a lot of fun. It's a place where ideally you can be in community, but it also we have basic services as well. Mm-hmm. People can get coffee or tea with us, a, a simple thing. Uh, we do laundry, we do boarding yeah. passes, things like that. That's not our main thing, but there are little things we do to help out mm-hmm. programs that are coming through town. What drew you to this, to first being in Spain and then running Pilgrim House specifically? My story is that, that my first pilgrimage really had nothing to do with the Camino. <laughs> I didn't really know what the Camino was, but in my college years, this is 20, 25 years ago, my backpack through Europe. And for me, it was truly a pilgrimage experience, even without having that language to, to describe it. It was a space of personal growth, of spiritual growth, of, of encountering more of myself, of learning from other people, and getting to know other people and other cultures. And just really all around a beautiful experience. Like I really connected with that traveling subculture. I think that's almost our base for being on the Camino and being here is that that we love travelers in general. And then what that means is for me, because it was such a spiritual experience, I really liked that spiritual space. And when we learned about the Camino and what it was, I was like, oh, this is everything we like about traveling, but it's kind of condensed that, that people here kind of see this as a spiritual experience. Whereas, you know, when you're backpacking and all that, not everyone sees it that way or not everyone experiences it that way, but this is pretty condensed. If you're not doing it for a spiritual reason yourself, you understand that others are. So there's just something very unique in that space uh, that I really like. When you're away from home for a long time, when you're in a, a different space, you just are more open to others, to yourself. Many pilgrims discover it's a very beautiful place to be. If we weren't in a COVID year, what would things be like at Pilgrim House? Like on a day-to-day basis, what's it look like for you? So we're open five days a week. 
We're closed on Wednesdays for meetings and Sundays for rest, but otherwise we're open during pilgrim season, which for us is usually like February, or March through December. That's what we usually do. And on a typical day, we have two people on shift, and then we're just available to care for whatever pilgrim comes in. So if you're a pilgrim, you come in and then we will ask you questions. Where did you walk from? How are you doing? You know, and you're welcome to share as much as you want. And then if you just need to sit down, you can sit. If you need to use the back room and have some solitude, you can do that and be quiet. Whatever else you need, we can offer to you. And for us, every day is different because every day different pilgrims come in. Depending on how many pilgrims come in, it can be really busy or it can be really quiet. And if it's quiet, we can spend more time with the pilgrims who are there if they want to talk. And a lot of what we do, like 80% of what we do is just listening to pilgrims kind of share their stories. And a lot of them, we find, appreciate that time because they've just got off the Camino. There's a lot of thoughts running around and experiences, highlights, lowlights. You know, sometimes they're anxious about going home and they're not looking forward to that. Or sometimes they've lost a loved one and they just still need to process that. So a lot of what we do is listening. That's one of our main purposes for being here because we realize that travelers and pilgrims need other people to just listen to them attentively and really care about the journey that they're on. And for us, May and June and September and October are our busiest months. That's when a lot of pilgrims from English-speaking countries come. So we find that the shoulder seasons are actually busier for us than the summer. Gotcha. You talked about processing these trip experiences and you do that informally, one-on-one, but then your website also shows how you have formalized it as well, that you have formal debrief processes. And I'm sure that you have a great deal of expertise now, given how many years you have spent helping pilgrims through this. Can you describe what that formal debrief process is that you've developed? I'm glad you, you kind of caught the distinction between the two, because in some ways, everything we do is kind of oriented around debriefing, right? And a lot of it is very organic. Right? So for certain people, you can kind of debrief or be debriefed without really planning for it or scheduling it. You just, you just relate. You talk and, and it happens. And that, it's not like we're the only ones that can do that. That happens everywhere. It happens on the Camino and Albergues, on the path. It just happens. But we do also try to create concrete space that's very purposeful about that. And so there's a couple different ways we go about that. And that word expert is a little bit misleading, perhaps. really is just about being with people. It really is. The tools help us be more structured and formal. But at the bottom of it, if you're not just present and one human to another, it doesn't work as well. And so in terms of tools, we have a debriefing guide. It's a one-page list of questions. We have it translated in, I don't know, 12 languages or something. It's multi-purpose for those that like to think on their own you can use it on your own you can journal with it you can just think on it you can just kind of have some time to yourself if you're someone who likes to chat with somebody you're welcome to sit down with one of us and chat through the list of questions or just with a friend or a family member you can do that so it's just very self-directed essentially you know someone can take the sheet and use it how they wish i think a lot of times at that point in the camino you've just finished you're ready to go home a lot of people aren't even quite ready to engage in those and so they like having the paper you, know, you take it with you and you can kind of process on the plane or when you get home. So that's one simple way we do that. Another way we do is we offer debriefing sessions that are scheduled. So we're available every day for sure. And depending on the time of the year, it might be a different time in the afternoon, but we kind of announce, hey, we're every day at this time, we're available to do a debrief. And it's designed to be a group debrief, but if one person comes, we'll debrief with one person. 
that just like we were talking about earlier, can be very organic and just be a conversation. We sometimes use tools. We have a couple sets of artistic photos, like card sets. They're great for asking questions and getting people, hey, pick a picture to describe this, pick a picture to describe that. And it's a great way of opening up and describing what's going on rather than just, oh, it was fun or it was good. Or, you know, it helps us open that up. So that's a really delightful tool. But by and large, it's just creating space. And we like the, that phrase a lot. Pilgrim's House is about creating space. And so whether it's physical space, relational space, or even in the form of these debriefs, it's a space to stop and think and process what's going on. So that's what we do in Pilgrim House. We will do those with individuals if they want to schedule it one-on-one for another time. If they want to work with us, we'll do that. We haven't launched it yet, so this is a little bit of a preview, but we are getting close to releasing a personal retreat that you can do at home after you've finished your Camino. So not while you're with us, but whether it's a month or two or six down the road, whatever you want. So that'll be available on our website probably within the month, if not Mm -hmm. sooner. It's another tool. It's completely self-driven, but it's another tool that someone can use to kind of process the end of the Camino and kind of where they are. That's awesome. I'm just curious about this. I'm a teacher. Part of my job is asking questions. Do you find that there are one or two questions that consistently generate particularly interesting reflections? Have you found one or two questions to be particularly effective at provoking reflection? If I'm leading one of the group debriefs, I always ask, pick three photos that represent where you were before your Camino, Mm. whether that means your job or your emotional state or what you were going through at home before your Camino. And that usually generates some discussion because people think back to before this Camino experience and they can kind of see maybe the difference or maybe the similarity of where they're at now, just finishing the Camino versus where they were before before embarking on it? I tend to focus on three timeframes. I Mm -hmm. I focus on past, present, and future. So similar to what Faith is saying, you pick a picture to represent the past, one about the Camino, one about the future. And and it's not any magical question. It's it's just a a different way of thinking about it. And then when you combine that with having to use an image and explain why that image represents what you're doing, that I think is really helpful in unlocking just a different way to think and talk about the things that have happened and then the things you're processing. Sometimes it's just simple things. That's the other flip side is sometimes it's just, hey, how did you hear about the Camino? You know, like yeah. what drew you to it? And then for many pilgrims, that's, that's enough to get going. Not all of them. You know, sometimes you get the same stories, but that's also a very simple way to get started anyhow. Yeah. Then I would say beyond that, it's just curiosity. If you're curious in a healthy way <laughs> about following up on what they're telling you, the stories they're telling you, be curious, ask questions. You'll learn more. They're usually willing to share. I like that idea of going into the specific, because it is really easy to fall back on generalities about the experience. And so let's do the same. I'm curious if, you know, over the six years now that you have spent doing this work, are there one or two stories that you've heard from pilgrims along the way that stand out to you that kind of exemplify the work that you are doing? The one that I was thinking about was when I was on shift one day, a pilgrim came in And she was very disoriented, like she had just walked the Camino and she loved it. But once she got to Santiago, all the uncertainties about her travel plans hit her. She couldn't even finish any sentences. She was trying to ask us, where can I go to find out about a flight or a hotel? But she couldn't even finish her sentences. She was so nervous about what was coming up. And we slowly got to unpick all of her anxieties about her traveling plans with her. And then we got to help her book a hotel room for that night, book a train to La Coruña, 
for a couple days following, book a hotel in La Coruña so that she could stay the night there before her flight out of La Coruña the following day. And then once all of that was set, then she could settle into talking about her Camino and thinking about it. And then we had a great two or three hour conversation where she shared a lot with us and was just able to think about her Camino and share what she had gotten out of it, which was quite a bit. It was funny because the more we heard about her life before the Camino, the more I realized, oh, this is a highly educated, articulate person, you know, but she just needed some help and care to deal with what she needed in the moment which was figuring out her very practical travel plans. And then she could settle in and really rest and enjoy getting off the Camino and celebrate it. And so for me, I felt very privileged to be on shift that day and to be able to receive her and just kind of see, okay, this is what she needs and let's help her. And then we had a very insightful conversation. I felt like that day for me was one of the days that I was like, this is great that we're here. Just to be clear, I'm going to be a little bit general, not because I'm trying to obfuscate, but you know, we do want to keep a little bit of privacy, I guess, for since of course. the public record. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it is also fairly easy for me, at least in my mind, to think about a few basic general types of pilgrims that do periodically repeat and that I think do embody what it is that we want to be doing. One type, it would be, I would say, kind of a younger, young adult person who's really kind of searching for themselves, right? We've had this a number of times, whether they're men or women, and they're kind of getting out of their home context for the first time and really discovering about themselves, searching spiritually, you name it, they're looking. I can think of two or three individuals easily off the top of my head that fit that group. The work is happening in their lives already. You're not doing anything, right? You're just present. You're letting them tell it, but it's really a precious moment to see. So that's one side. I think another side that always sticks with me is when you're you're working with somebody who's processing through trauma, whether it's grief of loss or personal trauma in their past, or you know, occasionally we've had some folks come through with PTSD for military service, things like that. There's a lot going on under the surface, and and it's at times it can be debilitating or feel debilitating because you think, well, what can I do? And you know, there's not much that we are doing, right, to make it better, but just simply being there, just listening to what they're saying, you can tell it makes a difference, right? And and that's kind of the basis. And so I know that's general, but for me, those are the types of relationships and connections that really jump out that I remember and that I like to share stories about. That's great. So let's transition now to this very strange year that we have all lived through and what 2020 has been like for you in Santiago living through the pandemic. Let's start again thinking about specifics. Are there particular moments from this past year that stand out to you as you reflect on what you have endured there? I feel like there are a number of specific things, and a lot of it has much more to do with the pandemic than it does pilgrims from Santiago. As you might know, if you're connected to the pilgrim world, Spain had a really severe lockdown in March and April and into May. That was just unforgettable. You'll never forget that experience of literally being restricted because we couldn't leave our home except to go grocery shopping, essentially. No exercising, no walks. No, I mean, it was really strict. And, you know, so we have four kids. And so we're in the house with four kids. And, you know, we, we at least have a backyard. And many of our friends and neighbors, they live in apartments. You know, that, that's how Spaniards do life. They're, they're living in apartments. So it was a stressful season, a stressful time. As life experience, that will never be forgettable, right? And, and there were good things about that. I mean, on the whole, it was horrible. We wouldn't want to do it again. But having that kind of intense family time together, was there were some, some things that kids will always remember, I think. And like on a personal level, Faith was in the U.S. right before that and literally landed here the day of the lockdown. So there was a lot of personal, like, 
is she going to make it? Are the planes going to be flying? Like, what's going on there? And that, so that was memorable, and we won't forget that. And I would say on a more pilgrim-focused, Camino-related thing that I probably won't forget is we reconnected with a pilgrim friend who's been in a number of times. And he actually walked through the strict lockdown in Spain. Like he crossed the border into, into Spain and one or two days later, they did the strict lockdown. Within that window, he took maybe a one or two week break because someone put him up in a, an extra room. But by and large, he walked the entire time, he and his dog. And so I, I feel comfortable telling his story because he was on, on the news and everything. But it was fascinating to meet him at the end and kind of hear his story about what it was like to walk through the pilgrimage through extreme lockdown with no pilgrims around. He was sleeping outside. You know, there were no albergues open. It was, I think, quite the experience. But he loved it. He was thrilled as could be to have finished it. I won't forget that. Yeah, I think the Spaniards have done a really good job, you know, wearing masks and trying to respect the limits that are placed on them. I feel like I've really respected that, you know, and to be here and to see how everyone kind of rallied around each other and the restrictions, that's been good. We have friends that set up a farmer's basket delivery service where people can purchase farmer produce for a lower price and have it delivered. And it's kind of like a farmer's co-op. And that has been great because it helps the local farmers here who were struggling during the pandemic. It helps a local grocery store who is setting up this co-op and then one or two delivery people are employed right now. So just trying to find little things to help out the people around here. We're also starting to order in food once a week now and trying to support the restaurants that we want to stay open because a lot of restaurants have had to close. So we're trying as a family, we should not be eating out this much and we never do. But right now we're trying to send some support to the businesses we want to stay open. Taking us out of ourselves, yes, we had to be locked down, but also now trying to think about, you know, how to help the people around us. I feel like the Spaniards have been an example in that. So it's been neat to see. What has all of this meant for Pilgrim House? What's the impact been there? So I was in the States, like Nate said, my dad was diagnosed with cancer in January and then passed away in June from cancer, not COVID. And so we waited quite a while to open back up. The lockdown, the stricter lockdown ended June 20-something, but we decided to just wait and get all of our safety measures in place before we opened back up. So with my father passing away as well and me being back in the States June and July, we actually didn't open back up until August. So we could have opened up a little bit sooner, but thankfully the team gave me time to just process my dad's death and be with my mom and stuff. So we opened in August and then we locked down again, Spain locked down again in November. So we had a very short year. We were only open August through November and we saw very few pilgrims. We still saw a handful of pilgrims, but we saw very few pilgrims. And it was strange in Pilgrim House to always be wearing a mask. Pilgrims didn't stay as long. Usually they might come in and out all day and just hang out and then go out and explore town and then come back and hang out more. But with the pandemic, I think everyone was more comfortable being outside. So pilgrims would come in for a little bit and then maybe just leave a bit quicker. There were a few exceptions to this, which I think Nate will talk about. It was just a strange year to have Pilgrim House open. And I'm glad we could still offer it, but with all the safety measures and with the social distancing, it wasn't like the family feel that we normally have inside. But it also forced us to be creative with other things, you know, because we closed down in November and then our teammate had the idea to maybe get working on a personal retreat, a guided retreat that people could use when they're back home, taking the lessons from the Camino 
and then bringing them home, kind of being reminded of the things that they learned on the Camino. So the guider retreat is kind of based on scripture and based on Psalm 23, which is the Lord is my shepherd. There's elements of that in there, but we're really excited to release that. So we were kind of forced to be creative a bit and also to be thinking about not just the pilgrims in town, because there were very few, but the community at large, like I was talking about before. So I feel like our brains went in different directions because we couldn't do Pilgrim House as long as we normally do, but it was still a fruitful time. I do know that a lot of people like to ask us about finances. <laughs> Who pays for this? How is it done? You know, and so we, that, that's a common question that pilgrims ask, more common than you think. From a financial perspective, I think we don't know yet what the long-term impact of this is. We are, as I mentioned, we're a nonprofit and we run on donations and, and we're consistently trying to find more pilgrims to help donate to keep this available for future pilgrims. At the moment, we're doing okay. We intend to open up when we can again this coming spring and, and we plan to be here when pilgrims, whenever they return, <laughs> whether it's spring, summer, or fall, we assume they're coming back at some point. That's a big question for all of us, right? What's it going to look like in a year? How is this going to impact us? I don't think we know, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we're still living in where we're going to look back someday and go, wow, we didn't know this impact was coming, but it had this longer term impact. So I think there are things that we just don't know. But we're not worried right now. There's a lot we don't know, but it's nice to know that we do know that Pilgrim House will be reopening in 2021. I'm sure lots of people will be glad to know that. What kinds of pilgrims were walking this year? I know that it was open and conditions were better in Spain than what we were facing over here in, in the U.S., at least for a little while. Who was hitting the road? We had a month or two, like July and kind of into August, where life here almost looked and felt normal. Like it just, it was a weird blip and what it's been a really strange year of like, oh, the tourist train is running again and there are pilgrims and these things that you're used to seeing that were gone for four or six months were back. And so kind of gave you the hope like, oh, maybe this thing will, will get under control and uh, it didn't work out. So in that window, it was primarily European-based pilgrims, right? I mean, people in the EU who could travel and, and were a little bit adventurous, I think, and a little bit hardy. <laughs> so I think to do the Camino at this stage, you just had to be willing to face uncertainty the Camino, especially the Camino Frances, I call it the Cafe de Cafe Camino, right? It may be frightening to some their first time around, but once you get into it, it's not challenging in the sense of where am I going to be? What's, you'll figure it out. You'll get to it. To do the Camino during COVID was very much, I may or may not find a bed. I may or may not find the restaurants open. Different points of the year, there were local closures. So, you know, we talked about Spain having a strict lockdown. That wasn't nationwide. Well, the last several months, we've been dealing with local authorities making local decisions about who gets closed when. And so right now, Santiago's closed, but you know this little village over here is not. Just a lot of uncertainty. So you've got to be hardy. You've got to be uh, willing to face the uncertainties. And I think that's the type of pilgrim that came. I don't know how many chose this, but I think those that walked kind of got a taste, perhaps, of what pilgrimage might have been like 20, 30 years ago. Very quiet, very few people. But when you in encounter locals, if they weren't too frightened because of COVID, they were curious and engaging and, and helpful. When we were open, we had a handful of what we call kind of our long-term pilgrims. So that there are pilgrims that we get to know that essentially live on the Camino. Folks that don't have homes maybe or are just constantly on the move. And so they cycle through Santiago once, twice a year, depends on how they travel. We actually saw quite a few of those folks when we were open. It was a hard thing for them because they were still arriving in Santiago and have it be a very welcoming and, and thriving and, and just kind of robust place. And it just isn't right now. Right? I mean, there's just, there aren't that many pilgrims and tourists. And there currently, there are hardly any. In that moment when we had some, there still weren't many. It's difficult for that population, I think. 
for sure we saw some pilgrims that we've met in previous years, and that was good. But it was interesting to me that nothing could keep them away from the Camino. You know, as soon as they could get out there, they still really wanted to be on the Camino. Like the Camino was still drawing them. Because I thought, you're crazy that you're walking right now. But nothing could keep them away, which actually speaks to something that they needed. But it was interesting how many pilgrims we started getting in October and November who said, we got to a town and there were no grocery stores or restaurants open. So we had to take a taxi to the next town, buy our food for the night, come back, sleep, and then keep walking. And so you realize you can't count on anything on the Camino right now. And I don't think that's for everyone at all. (laughs) I could not do that. If I couldn't count on at least something being open or at least getting food, I could not live so hand to mouth. And that's what they had to do. And I think that took them by surprise and that took us by surprise. I think some people did have to bail on the Camino. You know, they got here, they started, everything looked okay, but then things started closing down and then they couldn't count on anything anymore. And so that takes a lot of personal inner resources and money to get through. I admired them, but I would not have wanted to be out there. (laughs) And I'd say this too, that because of who we are and because of what we're doing, Pilgrim House draws a heavily international population lot of Brits and Americans and Canadians and Australians, you know, people who speak English as a first and second language. And a lot of those populations just literally couldn't be in Spain. And so a lot of those people we just didn't see. That definitely contributed to how very quiet it was for us in Pilgrim House. But the flip side is when it's really quiet like that, those that come in, you really get to enjoy, get to know them well, and you can spend some quality time with them. That was a nice side benefit to that, is that we had good quality time with the few that came. And now we're on to 2021. Vaccines started going into arms a few weeks ago. (laughs) I think it got everybody immediately a little bit hopeful that maybe normal is out there just on the other side of the horizon and and we're going to make it back to that. And I know that here in the U.S., everyone is speculating about timelines and what's possible down the road. So I'm just curious, on the ground in Spain, what kinds of conversations are you having over there? What are people thinking about when normal might be coming back, both in general life and with regards to the Camino? What are people anticipating about the year ahead? Right now, the EU is still closed to quite a few countries, America included. And so I feel like normal will probably not start happening until the EU actually opens up to more flights, more people, more international travel. However, as long as the EU borders remain open to each other, I think pilgrims will start coming in the spring. Just like we saw in this past year, even during our shortened season, people were still trying to come. And I think that will still happen starting in the spring, but we'll just see how many. I have heard, like on the Camino Forum, quite a few older pilgrims, over 65, they feel like they've walked their last Camino. So that is a little sad for people to say, I don't think I can get back out there. So I'm not sure what the demographics will be like and when people will come. I know albergues and other businesses are just hanging on. You know, if they can survive through this period and open back up, because Chacobeo is now 2021 and 2022, there's hope that they can hopefully make up their business. But, you know, we have seen some albergues and restaurants and bars close during these first couple waves. They won't be coming back. So normal will be a bit different because the establishments that were there may not be there anymore. 
we'll see how the traffic goes because we keep thinking, oh, this first wave is going down, but then there's a second wave and it's worse than the first wave. I used to anticipate Spain being back open for people in January or February, but I don't think it's going to be for a little bit. Realistically, I would be surprised if there's a true boom, a true return to some sense of normal Camino-wise until I would say no earlier than July, I would guess. Even that's kind of a shot in the dark. <laughs> You're like, if things go really well, I can see July and August being a time where things kind of start taking off again. I was just reading the paper today, kind of perusing what's going on. And there's a lot of anxiety here about the third wave now. You know, now we're getting through the holidays and things ramping up again and, and perhaps needing to go into more strict restrictions again. It's just hard to predict. Like, will that come true? Will it not? We're getting out our, our shots right now, but at the same time, the cases are going up. So <laughs> how long do we have to live that? And it may be months and months and months yet before we, we see some equilibrium. Yeah, it'd be nice if we could see more people in spring, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's yeah. the summer, even the fall, that we start seeing that normalcy. Like what Faith was talking about, like it's been hard to see known and familiar places simply close down. You know, and they're done, right? They're not coming back. Some of them you hope they are. And a lot of it is uncertain. A lot of places are closed down and you're like, I don't know if they're coming back or not. We don't know what's going to happen there. Today we walked down Rua Franco, you know, all those restaurants, that whole street. It was so quiet. It was like 1.30 in the afternoon, right? That's the boom time. And it was most of the doors were shut. There were very few people there. They weren't the closed permanently. They were just closed so for the season. Part of it is hard to know. It's hard to know right. who's permanent and who's not. Right. Yeah. On the bright side, at least, Pilgrim House will be open in 2021. If conditions permit, would it typically be like a March, April opening? This year, we have already planned for a March 1st opening. And if anything changes, we'll, we'll keep adjust. people updated. <laughs> but right now, yeah, we're planning on March 1st. And I'm sure it'll be very slow, like just a trickle in the beginning. And we'll see how it goes. The only reason why we wouldn't open up right now, March 1st, is if there's another strict lockdown. And you mentioned you're a nonprofit. So if people want to support your work, through donations or potentially by volunteering? How can they do that? They can visit our website, pilgrimhousesantiago.com. And then we don't have information about volunteering there, but they can contact yeah. us. And then I usually respond to those inquiries. And donation information is there too. Our mother organization in the US is called One Collective. It's a Christian nonprofit organization. And so the US donations actually go to one collective to support Pilgrim House. It's a bit complicated. But the website will guide you. Yeah, the, the website will guide you. Good deal. Well, thanks to both of you for your work and for speaking with me for the podcast. Thank well, you, thanks Dave. Thanks for having us. Sybil Yates runs a Jiria house in Santiago de Compostela. She developed and coordinated the Camino Chaplaincy. And she's the author of Pilgrim Tips and Packing List Camino de Santiago. What you need to know beforehand, what you need to take, and what you can leave at home. She's not only walked more than 6,000 kilometers on European pilgrim routes in Spain, France, Italy, and England, but she's also helped as a Hospitalera Voluntaria, in more than 20 pilgrim refugios on the way. It's great to have you here, Sybil. So you are in Santiago. We are still in the midst of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. What is life like for you in Santiago right now? After the state of alarm alert has been finished in summer last year, 
the handling of the restrictions was given to the regional governments. So for the longest time, the Galician regional government would apply to the different municipalities. We had situations where one town was at the lowest level of restriction and the neighbor town on the highest. That all has now changed a few days ago, Santiago, as whole of Galicia is now under the highest level of restrictions again, which means we have a curfew from 10 in the evening at 6 o'clock in the morning. Just recently, all the bars, cafes, restaurants are now completely closed, also the terraces. They can still offer home delivery and takeaway. But you know the little neighborhood bus in Santiago from the two, three takeaways, coffees they get a day. That is not enough for survival. So a lot of the places just decided to close down for the moment completely. All these restrictions are at the moment in place for the next three weeks to come until the 17th of February. Until then, they will decide how it goes, depending on the numbers of the pandemic here. There's restrictions on movement. So I couldn't, even if I wanted, I couldn't leave Santiago without a reason which has to be either work, health, or education. Non-essential shops are still open, but they have now to close by six o'clock. Essential shops like pharmacies, supermarkets can still be open until half past nine. And obviously there are nighttime pharmacies here around. Hospitals have already started to juggle patients around depending on, for example, between Lugo and Orenza, I think, depending how occupied the hospitals are. At the moment, as far as I know, none of our hospitals is over capacity. But the last numbers I've seen was that there's around 30 plus patients in hospital are now there because of COVID and similar in the ICUs. And like I always say, other diseases, other illnesses don't stop. People still get a heart attack, have an accident, get a stroke, whatever. So COVID is on the, uh, like everywhere else in the world. We still are allowed to go out for non-essential recreational walks and so on, as long as we don't leave the town, city, village where we live. Ah, yes, and the big shopping malls, fortunately, have to be closed now on weekends, and there are restrictions on how many people can be inside a shop, which is normally very well advertised. One of my local supermarkets now has even a traffic light system. So you see in the entrance if there's capacity to go in or not with green and red lights. Hmm. We have mandatory since long time, mandatory face mask here in Galicia, which I very much be in favor of. I can't understand the discussion about it elsewhere. Every shop, basically, if it's a small shop, you just go in one by one. The bigger shops have sometimes different doors for exit and entrance. Pretty much every single shop, from the smallest bakery to the supermarket, has hand sanitizer. So if I go out, I don't have to take my own hand sanitizer <laughs> because it's everywhere. And including a lot of shops, single-use hand gloves. The other restrictions have now since a few days in place is that we are not allowed to meet up with anybody who's not living with us in the same household. Not even for a socially distanced walk in the park. Nada de nada. The only thing what really affects me theoretically is that not being able to meet up with other people because I live alone. But in fact, the friends I have in Santiago are the same like me and very careful 
and we wouldn't meet up anyway how the situation is at the moment but knowing that you can't it's like in the lockdown it wasn't so bad to stay inside most of the day but knowing yet that you can't go outside i always say the flat i'm living in at the moment it's both a sanctuary and a prison <laughs> only place that really feels safe because i control who comes in nobody and i can leave it but at the same time as soon as you go out then anxiety hits on galicia has now more people ill with covid and that and in hospital and in icu than during the first wave and i think it has something to do with that the first wave here in galicia was relatively mild compared to what happened for example in madrid so people lost the fear and then we had this lovely summer where we had unimaginable low numbers i think there was at st james day i looked it up we had like 42 active cases of covid in the whole of santiago healthcare area vaccination is the next one they have started to vaccinate people here in spain at the very end of december in spain it goes by priority group so first were people in nursing homes because that was one of our horrible focal points of the first wave then healthcare workers and now they have announced in march they will start to vaccinate the group of people who are over 80 years old what pedro sanchez said we got 10 days ago that by the end of summer 70% of the population will be vaccinated i don't see it looking at the numbers as they stand at the moment it doesn't add up so personally because i don't have any underlying health issues and i'm relatively young i'm soon to be 53 i'm looking at hopefully beginning of next year to get vaccinated wow. at how it currently goes which brings me to the stand of the camino as it is in december the pilgrims office has issued 99 compostelas and some days ago i read that uh, january they issued so far at that date 50 compostelas that are mostly local people mostly from what i see on the statistics people who started a long time ago long distance pilgrims and then the ones who basically live on the camino the other thing the archbishop of santiago don julian barrio barrio has announced that there will be no semana santa holy week processions so that is all like last year back to online but obviously if you ever have been to one before covid is a very good idea and for me as i said as i live alone it means basically a part of the summer social isolation other than online wow that is really helpful to understand the the current context and uh discouraging <laughs> there's a large section of pilgrims that have been hoping as we cross into 2021 we've made it into another year vaccines are starting to go around maybe they'll be able to get back this year and it seems like that's still a ways off i think so we also obviously have national travel restrictions from one province to the other there's restrictions of from which countries people could come in i personally don't think anything big will happen on the camino at least until the well into the second half of the year 
I think if the numbers go down again, we will see a slight increase in Spanish pilgrims of people who are resident here in Spain. That when you look at the pilgrim statistics, you sometimes see, oh, somebody from the U.S. has done the Camino. No, that might be well somebody who lives in Valencia or Murcia. I have a friend who is from Israel, but he lives down in Almeria. He did a part of the Camino in summer when it was safe. So even if you look at foreign nationals, there are most likely people who either are resident here in Spain or in other parts of mainland Europe. So I wanted to start there just to get a sense of where things are right now as we talk in late January 2021. But let's go back to happier times or at least different times. I've always laughed on the forum, you identify yourself as a Camino fossil. So I'm curious where your Camino story began, what drew you to it in the first place, and what your story is there. For my accent, you can guess that I'm not a native English speaker, so I'm German by birth. The first time, actually, I heard of the Camino in history class in high school. I kind of was fascinated. I thought, wow, all this medieval people walking across Europe or back. Why doesn't that exist anymore? So we are now speaking the 80s, yeah, 70, 80s. And then slowly by slowly, especially after the holy year of 1993, there were more reports. I remember reading in a doctor's waiting room the German equivalent of the National Geographic who had some series of photos from blisters and mattresses on the floor and cold showers. And I was like, yeah, you people have not for me. <laughs> so and then fast forward to 1999, I had come to a point in my life where I really wasn't sure what I want to do with the rest of my life. 99 was also whole year, but I started in winter in Roncesvalles and walked to Santiago. That kind of when I seriously caught a Camino virus. <laughs> I then spent time as a hospitalera from 2000 to 2004 in around 25 albergues on the Camino, mainly the Camino Frances, and one alberga on the Camino to Fisterra. Then I moved to England, walked there a bit, moved to the Czech Republic, fulfilled then in 2014 a very old dream of mine. I walked from Prague where I lived at the time, to Santiago de Compostela. That was amazing. And I must say, now in this time I live in, where I not even can leave the city I live in, I'm so happy that I did this long walk across Europe, because I don't know when it will be the next time possible. It's a very happy memory, me with my tent walking across half of Europe. In May 2017, or actually before, I had again the possibility of deciding what I want to do with the rest of my life. I did a part of the Camino Frances, did a part uh, of the Via de la Plata the year before, the whole Plata, sorry, and looked at possibilities. And the only door that really opened was here in Santiago. And so I moved here with this vague idea of doing something with pilgrims and poor pilgrims. And it developed from there in sometimes very curious and very different directions. And I want to ask you about those in a little bit, but I, I want to stick with 1999 a little bit longer because something happened there that hooked you, that caused your life then to move in a different direction, given just how much of it has been oriented towards the Camino and pilgrimage since then. So when you look back on that, what was so significant, so impactful about that 1999 pilgrimage? I can pinpoint it actually to one place and one moment. 
you know when you come to an alberge you normally look for the hospitalero to hand over your pilgrim credential you get told where the donativo box is or they just want a certain amount of money so i had the night before slept in santo domingo de la calzada but i had heard that canyon is a special place so i followed up there into the famous tower <laughs> looked around nobody there only me and it was mid morning i mean we had started late it was winter it was mid morning and i looked around and said i have all the time in the world i'm in no rush to go to santiago so i put a backpack down and then i noticed that whilst the albergue was fine and clean and everything but the kitchen was a bit disorderly dirty dishes so the last pilgrims hadn't done the breakfast dishes so me is standing in the kitchen washing the plates and cups and thinking how I get hold here of a hospitalero because there was no indication how to get hold of one. And whilst I'm doing that, somebody who obviously was a Roman Catholic priest because all in black with dog collar turns up and I dry my hands and say, hang on, hang on a second, I get my credential. After we had established which language to speak, which at that time was French because I didn't spoke any reasonable amount of Spanish. And so he looked at me and said, I'm not welcoming credentials, pilgrim passports in this alberge, I'm welcoming people. That person in question at that time, the parish priest from Granion was Jose Ignacio Diaz Perez, who was, as I later discovered, the co-founder of the Hospitaleros Voluntarios, and at that time, the one who, who managed the whole volunteer setup. In the evening, as it's tradition in Granion, we had a communal meal just the priest and I, because I was the only pilgrim. So I inquired a bit more about what it is to be a hospitalera, and well, the rest is history. It's interesting that that's where you went with that story, because I was curious about your 1999 experience, and in reading about your background, the other thing that stood out to me is the fact that you have volunteered as an hospitalera in 20 refugios. So there was something in particular about that role of being a host that stood out to you as a pilgrim that then you fulfilled moving forward. So what is it about that that's special to you? Funnily enough, at that time, I spoke German, English, and French. But at that time, a part of Spanish, obviously, which I had to learn very, very quickly, <laughs> were the main languages pilgrims would communicate. So that equipped me for it. Then my professional background is in two things, in nursing and in hotel and catering, which also is a really good. So I was like a bit convinced that life, God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, just gave me the preparation. And I fell into place and I was a part of not speaking Spanish, being equipped with all what you need for the role as a hospitalera, because you need languages, ideally. You need at least know how to cook. And I quickly learned how to cook for 70 plus people. <laughs> and a bit of nursing and first aid knowledge is always very good. And then it happened over the next 20 years. There was also in the association of the Hospitalieros Voluntarios a big emphasis of continuous formation. So whilst normally you do this weekend course to become a Hospitalero, but once you have served one time, during the winter and early spring, there always were always courses for veteran hospitaleros 
like psychology 101, certain types of treating tendonitis, history, how to pray with pilgrims, all that kind of stuff. So if you wanted to get really involved with it, you got continuous volunteer formation. Now all that has obviously shifted online. What do you like about being a hospitalera? What I like, when you do a pilgrimage, it's like you are visiting the world. You are walking through the world. If you're stationary as a hospitalera, the world comes to you. And every day is different and every day is the same. Every morning you have to clean the place, empty the rubbish, gently show the last pilgrim out of the door. Then you never know what happens. You never know which language you have to speak when those pilgrims arrive. You never know if you are on cooking duty or if a hobby chef or professional chef appears and shows you out of the kitchen. So every day has its rhythm, its routine, but every day also has a surprise. And every day has the hardship of saying goodbye to the pilgrims in the morning, but also, let's be honest, the joy of the occasional pilgrim, yes, going. <laughs> Most pilgrims are lovely, nice, but... One in a million is there, like Bon Camino. Along with hosting and tending to pilgrims, you've obviously learned a lot of technical best practices about how to do this work. And that led to you writing your book about eight years ago now, Pilgrim Tips and Packing List, Camino de Santiago. Why'd you write it? At that time, there wasn't anything around what really had information for people, like I always put it, who just watched the way, <laughs> have no idea what it's all about, haven't done any hiking or long distance walking before. And so it's basically, what is the Camino? Which Caminos are there to choose from? What you should take and shouldn't take? Because then over the forums had contact with people who were asking questions like, do we need a water filter? Uh, no. There were often people who have done really difficult long-distance walks like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Coast Trail. They came with completely different mindsets. As we know, the Camino is nearly a suburban walk. It goes from village to village, at least on the Francais. The longest stretch without no services is the famous 16 kilometer after Carrion de los Condes. But even there in summer, there was normally a little picnic point. So... If somebody walks the Camino Frances, walked, all has changed now, walked the Camino Frances during the main season between Easter and so on, you really didn't need the huge backpacks I've seen. It's interesting that it's the under-experienced and over-experienced walkers that both need the book. They each have different challenges. The over-experienced ones really don't need to read the book. If somebody asks me, do I need the book, I said, no, actually, the biggest bit of historic background you can look up and just take a little as you anyway take because the really experienced long-distance hikers are nearly all in the ultralight packing field. Typically, even if they bring a full long-distance hike equipment with them, they are still, in terms of kilos and pounds, way below to what other pilgrims who have no hiking experience carry. For example, I'm not really in the ultra-ultra-light packing field. When I walked from Prague to Santiago, including tent, sleeping pack, food, water for the day, everything what you needed, 
my backpack was 13 kilo and that included like i said a tent and everything what you need for being self-sufficient food and water mm-hmm. i've seen pilgrims here in summer doing the camino francese with more it was interesting looking back through your book because it's in some ways like a time capsule right it's all of the best advice for 2013 and things have changed in some way but in other ways the book holds up perfectly well so i'm wondering from your mind if you had to go back and update it now what are one or two really important changes that you think you would need to highlight i will sooner or later get around to update the book obviously (laughs) certain sections about materials are now available and how average weight of certain items has gone down. That certainly needs to be corrected. Then things which have been mainly caused by COVID has to be updated, like now having uh, the possibility of digital credential and digital stamps that didn't exist before. And that makes the updating of the book so difficult, while certain things with the COVID situation are now firmly established. Others will change continuously. And some advice also of, oh, don't you worry. If you walk the Camino Frances, don't plan ahead. Don't book ahead. Just ask your feet if they want to walk a few kilometers more and go to the next alberga in three kilometers. That certainly isn't possible anymore because that alberga might have died during the COVID crisis. I mean, we see more and more albergas and other businesses popping up on the market. People just cutting losses and say long-term, The future is looking pretty dim and grim, which it does. So I think a pilgrim who in Spain is fully open again and free movement between provinces is allowed again. A pilgrim would need to plan very well in advance where to stay. Or again, like years ago, carry their own tent to be on the safe side of life. That has changed. I sometimes think... To be honest, and don't misunderstand me, but actually the Camino was choking on its own success, especially the Camino Frances, the Camino Portugues, the North. The Plata less so because of the weather, and the other lesser known Caminos less so, but the Camino Frances especially was choking on its own success. Before COVID hit, we counted with at least half a million of pilgrims walking this holy year, which obviously will not happen. So it's like the Camino has been thrown back into time. Like even before I did the first time the Camino. When I walked the Camino for the first time in 99, there was one alberga every 20, 25 kilometers more. The last time I was on the, walking on the Camino Frances a few years ago, there was not one single village on the whole Camino Frances that didn't have at least one alberga that will change in the nearer and not so near future. Let's go back to Santiago now. And you mentioned that you moved there in 2017 without necessarily a clear vision of what would come. What did come? Echeria House has now gone through so many versions and incarnations that I kind of lost count. Friends who live here helped me to find a place which had a house pretty much on the Camino to Finisterre, just after the cathedral, which has a part of one bedroom, two free bedrooms, and a separate bathroom. So I started when I moved there with offering in the afternoons 
like a drop in tea and coffee that went mainly via Ivar's forum and a bit of Facebook. So pilgrims could just turn up, chat about their experience. I'm a Christian, but it was tied to being religious. So they could just have a coffee, a tea, chat about their experience, whatever. The two bedrooms, I didn't never wanted to make competition to albergues. But in summer, there was then quickly this uh, situation that pilgrims simply couldn't find a bed. Or pilgrims who, for whatever reason, couldn't afford a hotel room, but didn't want to be in an albergue. Then there was the odd pilgrim with the dog, who's not admitted anywhere else anyway. Then obviously pilgrims who walked the Camino without any money. And I need to say, the who set up since then, since the first moment, because I come from this Granion tradition. It has always been only on a donation base. And I only would indicate where the box was if people would ask. The house was very good that it had the kitchen downstairs. So pretty much downstairs was communal area, take whatever you need. My private stuff was on the second floor, so nobody could get to my computer. Sorry, guys. So it was very easy to manage. At the end of my first pilgrim season here in Santiago, I've sat together with some friends and together we came up with this idea of starting a Camino chaplaincy for non-Roman Catholics. I don't want to confuse people too much about how churches work, but for practical reasons and for reasons of, I had the most experience with, we uh, put it under the Church of England, because Spain is part of the diocese in Europe of the Church of England, got bishop approval, got volunteers. Then in my second year here, we did two test runs, six weeks in spring, summer, and six weeks in the autumn fall, with volunteer priests from pretty much all over the world. We saw that it worked out. The next year, we ran the program basically from shortly after Easter until mid-October. And by then, our ecumenical relationships here with the archdiocese had gone very, very well. And together with other Christians, like some Orthodox priests who care for immigrants here, we got to the church up the hill in Alameda Park, Santa Susana. Then by the end of that year, 2019, we were all geared up, emails flying around the world. Holy year, shall we start earlier? Shall we do the whole year? I always said, I will take some time up off in summer. I want to walk the Camino Frances in a holy year, arriving for St. James Day in Santiago. Ha, ha, ha. I always said, I want to do that before I'm too old to sleep on the floor, because holy years are crazy. I've spent a holy year, 2004, as a hospitalera. It's madness. Obviously, nothing of that happened. Then, it's a very curious story. At the end of the last pilgrim season, the house... I rented was perfect for welcoming pilgrims, but it had one big disadvantage. It didn't have any outdoor space, not a balcony, no terrace, no patio, no garden, no nothing. And in winter, it was very dark. And our winters here are gray and rainy and not good for, for the mood. So I heard and connected with some other volunteers here that there was a volunteer flat free in winter. They were just putting up a holding rent ready to move in after the six months of winter were over. The low season was over. So I was like, okay, hang on. The rent is half of what I pay in the house. Electricity is also 
flat. The flat has a balcony, ha ha. It's in the first floor, so I get far more light. So I put all the house equipment in boxes, stored it in the attic of a friend, and moved with my personal belongings into this flat that was November 2019. I'm still here. <laughs> because obviously these volunteers came not back last year. The sisters and volunteers of the faithful companions of Jesus who help with the English-speaking Roman Catholic Mass in the Pilgrim's Office. So I'm still here, very happy so. And at the moment, nobody here thinks that anything big will happen this year in terms of foreigners coming in and needing much things. I've seen this year so far one pilgrim who came to pick up some things he needed. One pilgrim this year. Do you plan in the future if when things open back up to be hosting pilgrims once again and to be involved with the chaplaincy? Uh, chaplaincy, like I have said, we have put on hold for the moment. I've also officially have retired as the coordinator because there's just no need for it. And let's not go into church politics. But the chaplaincy is kind of in hibernation. Okay. For 2022, I hope to rebuild something on the lines of the Camino chaplaincy. Ideally, but I'm pretty unsure about how to practically do things like this, ideally something with even more focus on ecumenism. So instead of being under the cover of one church, having volunteers from different churches. But how to do that safely, practically, with safeguarding, making sure the people who come are the right kind of people, which I mean people who are welcoming to everybody, no matter where they're coming from. But I have time to think about it. I have time to put structures again in space. What I'm actually now doing in Santiago is something what I didn't expect it ever to happen. Even at the old place, they would come occasionally two, three times a month a person and ask if I had some food for them. Down from the street where I live, lives an extended family of Romani. Please don't confuse them with Romanians. They are Romani. Who pilgrims will remember of backing around the cathedral. Obviously, the pandemic has hit them in measures people can't imagine. Because if you live from begging, the lockdown, the pandemic, they got food during our heavy lockdown from the Red Cross. But I'm now running since around July last year, kind of an unofficial neighborhood food bank, which is very small. It's not big numbers of people who come, around a dozen, the three families I'm looking after in total. But at least they have fresh food, vegetable, tables, and so on. One time I got in a big closing donation, so that needs to be sorted and put out. And as I know the three families now quite well, I know what they need, what they like, what they don't like, what the requirements are, who has children, who doesn't have children. And you've just taken that on yourself, just through coincidence. It just developed. During the lockdown, I noticed that I a lot of things in the flat because the previous volunteers moved out, left everything in the kitchen and told me, just use it up and when we come back next year, uh -huh, just make sure that the cupboards are full. But there was a lot of stuff I would never eat or drink. Like I'm not a tea drinker, but most of the volunteers were British. So there were like hundreds of tea bags. So I got a plastic box with a side, take what you need, but please leave the box. 
Now the box went walking two times, because I guess because it was easier just to carry the box. And then I switched to a cardboard box before the house, which worked well. But then when spring and summer started, it was such so limited what I could put in the box. Because you have the rain in Galicia or you have heat in summer. It really makes it difficult to keep food safe for everybody. So I then decided that people were already ringing the doorbell and saying, do you have this or that? And so I said, okay, I take the box inside the entrance. So they never enter the flat to get things. It's inside the entrance. I'm two meters apart. We are all wearing face masks. The people who regularly come are all related and still visiting each other. So there is no danger of transmission because they touch the same things in the box. They anyway go to each other's houses and hug. And if somebody rings the doorbell who isn't part of this extended family, I just ask them what they need if they have the possibility to cook at home and pack them up a plastic bag with what I have available. Hmm. And before somebody puts a halo once again on my head, (laughs) I'm not financing, I couldn't, I couldn't finance it alone. But over time, friends have joined me. I also run a small German internet forum. So there are people who are sending me small but regular donations. Sometimes people sending me bigger donations. I just received a very big one, which will keep the neighborhood pantry for a long time, well into summer in stock. I'm not only telling the story to say what's going on here in Santiago. There's something what is called the little free pantry movement. Because I think if everybody who has a bit more than they need, would do something similar. This world would look different in a very, very short time. If somebody has two tins of baked beans or whatever in the cupboard and puts just one tin out for the neighbor to get without questions asked, that would help so much. There's also a lot of hidden poverty here. Spain has a social security system, but it's not very... Good, it's completely overloaded now with the backlog of applications. The main social security net in Spain is the family. So you now have children who move back in with the parents, grandparents with their pension supporting their children and grandchildren. But that's the same all over the world. But if everybody just would share what they have, what they actually don't need, we could have, if you look at a map of the Little Free Pantry website, If you could have in each neighborhood a couple of them, it would make such a difference and it would be less work and less pressure on the professional services. Because the other positive thing of the neighbors coming to me for food and other supplies is that they don't have to stand in a line at the soup kitchen, or not so often. They don't have to stand in the line to get clothing from Caritas, or at least not so often, which also helps to keep down the pandemic it's safer to come to my house entrance than to stand for a long time in a queue at a soup kitchen. That makes a lot of sense. That's a great note to wrap up on. Thank you, Sybil, for telling me about your past, about your present, about the work that you're doing. It's really neat to hear. Good. Thank you for having me. It's worth noting that those two interviews were recorded roughly three weeks apart, 
with Nate and Faith joining me in early January, and Sybil following late in the month. It's hard not to notice how the tone shifted just over that time period. Conditions declined precipitously in Santiago over those three weeks, dashing cold water on that early, mild optimism. It's easy to get caught on the pendulum right now. In some ways, there was some simplicity to not seeing the end in sight, as was the case months ago. You had to lower your head, go one day at a time, control what you could control, all the cliches. Now, though, with vaccinations rolling out, there's this surge of hope. And hope is both exciting and dangerous. Exciting because it gives us that possibility for the first time in a while of something good, something we long for. And dangerous because it's causing many of us to lower our guards and dream a bit more, and that just increases the vulnerability. And of course, nobody can really predict where we're going to be four or five months from now. COVID's made a lot of people look pretty dumb on the predictions front, and that certainly includes me. If two more vaccines get cleared for distribution, that'll speed up a lot of things. If some of these COVID mutations prove to be resistant to the vaccines, that's going to grind things to a halt. We so badly want something to look forward to, and we're all painfully low on patience at this point. But I'm afraid we're going to have to scrape together a little bit more. What stands out to me about Faith, Nate, and Sybil's stories from Santiago, though, is how they're all devoting energy towards supporting businesses and people who are vulnerable right now, helping them with what they can to weather what is hopefully the last big wave of this storm. And Sybil's suggestion of the Little Free Pantry Network is a great suggestion of a simple, easy thing we can all support. Indeed, if you're in the U.S. in particular, there's a good chance you can find a Little Free Pantry at a location near you. Just check out littlefreepantry.org. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Nate and Faith Walter. You can find them at pilgrimhousesantiago.com and on Rua Nova 19 in Santiago when conditions permit. Thanks as well to Sybil Yates of Egeria House. You can find her book, Pilgrim Tips and Packing List Camino de Santiago on Amazon. And you can learn more about the Little Free Pantry movement again at littlefreepantry.org. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thank you as always for listening.